Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Dr. David Wilcox is with us today. We are going to be discussing healthcare, Medicare, etc., and what kind of choices, what kind of future do we have? We're also going to talk to a, uh, not talk to, but we're going to listen to what a neoliberal economist had to say and show how misguided things are in our economic system. We're going to go over some of that. And of course, we're going to uh, listen to what recent Anand Hidalas had to say about uh, the wealthy and what they try to control. You know what we say here? Let's get busy. Anand Hidad Hidalas, I tell you what, he hit the nail on the head. Everybody knows by now that uh, Musk bought about around 10% of Twitter. And many people just, many people love to revere Musk as if he's this great person that has done so much. And I've been really down on him. I've been down on all these billionaires because I don't think they really contribute much to society. It's great to see the author of Winner Takes All gets it. I want you guys to listen to this and then we'll go ahead and take it on the other side because it's rather important and he articulates it perfectly. Your thoughts on him now basically being Twitter's biggest owner. We live in this moment in which the arsonists are cosplaying as firefighters. The people who cause our greatest social problems, global problems, are trying to con us into thinking not only that they're okay, but that they are the solution to the problems they've caused. So look at Musk. Musk uh, has built his business through government subsidies years ago and now turns around, stiffs the government on taxes and, and explains how inefficient government spending is and he can do everything better privately in space and elsewhere. Uh, he is building in Tesla, a documentedly racist company uh, that perhaps reminds him, uh, gives him nostalgic memories of apartheid South Africa, where he grew up. Uh, and on social media, he's been charged by the SEC with misleading investors and paid millions in fines. Uh, he's more than that, an embodiment of what I would say is Twitter's biggest strategic problem, which is a hostile, cruel, uh, dangerous mm-hmm. online environment, especially for women, especially for people of color, women of color in particular. And mm-hmm. Musk embodies that bullying, that bro harassment, the pedo guy thing. I mean, you can't do that unless you're one of the world's richest people. Just call someone a pedo with no basis. And he won the case even though he did it because mm-hmm. he's the world's richest guy. And so here we have now, after someone who has helped make Twitter worse every day, the arsonist is coming back to cosplay as firefighter. He is going to be at the board seat, Joy, yeah. discussing mm-hmm. how to make 
Twitter safer, how to make it better. And his agenda has been telegraphed very clearly, less control. At a moment when Twitter's greatest uh, opportunity and need is for greater control of Nazism on the platform, of doxing and brigading of women and ruining women's lives for having opinions uh, on Twitter, controlling that. He wants the opposite, and they yeah. have welcomed him to their board. And the thing is that he wasn't even honest. About, I mean, he broke the law already. So he delayed filing this form that he's supposed to do when he's supposed to disclose, you know, that he's bought 9.2 percent of the company. He didn't do that. He delayed it. He made one hundred and fifty six million dollars by delaying the disclosure of his stake. He made a ton of money, waited more than 20 days to do the disclosure. So he made money. But that's not even legal. He'll get away with that, too. And what, I don't know if you were I worry about part of what you said there. We are coming up to an election where you're going to probably have now a flood of misinformation again, maybe Trump back in play, all the dangerous, all the little Nazis that used to be on there, the QAnoners, he might bring them all back. Our democracy doesn't have terrific odds right now, as you cover every night uh, on this broadcast for a, a gazillion different stories that are all kind of intersecting and coalescing in one historical moment. It doesn't have great odds. One of the things making those odds even worse every day is that a growing chunk of Americans, a significant minority, uh, are no longer dwellers of the land of reality. They live in a fantasy. And it's not a fantasy of their own private bedroom concoction. It is mm -hmm. a fantasy manufactured by some of the richest and most powerful and intelligent people on earth who know better and profit from making those people believe those things so they can get right-wing authoritarian fascist governments to give them a tax cut, cut some regulations, mm -hmm. repeat and rinse. And Elon Musk is the fox coming into the hen house. And it is shameful that Twitter, which has a fiduciary obligation, I would think, to protect people who actually use it, the millions of people who actually use it. The, did they ask a single woman? A single woman. Was a single woman consulted? And this is it was a single person of color who just uses yeah. Twitter, who made the mistake of using Twitter and needs it for their job, needs it to amplify the stories they do, needs it for the reporting they do. Yeah. Did they consult with anybody? I reached out to Parag Agarwal tonight yeah. a couple of days ago when this yeah. news broke, saying, let's yeah. let's have a conversation. You're yeah. brown. I'm brown. Let's I would love for you to hear from yeah. someone who doesn't have this point of view. Yeah. Uh, I guess he only it has time to respond to Elon Musk. And, you know, what is so important about what he said, and I hope you guys listen to it. Number one, we shouldn't really sit down here having respect for these billionaires as if they accomplished this stuff on their own because they didn't. In fact, most of the times, most of the accomplishment was on the back of some. They were the ones who were able to get the accolades for that particular accomplishment. They're just good at using the capitalist system where they monetize somebody else's work. But the other thing that he's pointed out is something we talk about here on Politics Done Right all of the time, but we have to inculcate it into the minds of other people out on the majority. And that is these people who are living in this fantasy land, a fantasy land created by the rich, the plutocracy, into fooling you into believing QAnon, fooling you into believing that supply-side supply economics works, fooling you into believing that billionaires are job creators, fooling you into believing all these things that uh, somehow uh, it is it, the energy that you use, it's only these groups that can get it. You know, 
keeping, uh, uh, you know, for, for those who want more oil, right? We have Venezuela swimming in oil, but because they don't have the right governmental system where the corporate control of the resources can be maintained, we'll just leave that pool of oil until we can overthrow that government and have the corporations go in. That is what we do. Anand gets it. Many people get it. The problem is we need so many more telling the story. And that is what we're doing. Question, what is insanity? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And it seems like Americans, we the people, will not get out of it. We continue to allow an economic system to run us ragged and to take our monies, our income, our wealth, and transfer it to a few. And you know, the economists that fall within this system, they're not bad. Today we have Larry Summers being interviewed by Chuck Todd. And some of the things he said was cool, pretty, pretty good. But he showed that he has no idea what the average American person goes through because he makes it seem as just numbers when it comes to how an economic system is supposed to work. And those numbers that he infer only satisfies the whims of a few. I want you to listen to this because again, it's not all bad, but the parts that he gets wrong, the parts that he gets horrendously wrong, is why we repeat the same things over and over again while we have these cycles. Later on, I'm gonna have Dr. Professor Richard Wolf, who's gonna talk on some of these issues, but let's go ahead and listen to him, and then we'll take it on the other side. It's likely that if on Inauguration Day, someone had told President Biden that more than a year later, he could have unemployment at 3.6% and dropping, wages in the stock market on the way up, and the housing market humming. He probably would have taken that deal. But there was a fine print, inflation. It's at a four-decade high, and that has Americans sour about the economy overall. And on our latest NBC News poll, adults disapprove of President Biden's handling of the economy by a nearly two-to-one margin, and it only has continued to grow. One person who saw inflation coming is former Clinton Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who is now also predicting the U.S. is likely to fall into a recession next year if things don't change quickly. Good to be with you. Let me start with um, what did you see that so many others missed? You know, we've seen predictions of inflation over the last 40 years. Uh, you're the one that seems to have gotten the timing of this hit right. What did you see? I saw that we had a tidal wave of demand between zero interest rates from the Fed, a huge outpouring of saving that people had pent up from the COVID period, and massive fiscal uh, policy from the December bill and then the stimulus bill that was passed, it just seemed to me that demand was going to overheat. We were going to have labor shortages. The bathtub was going to overflow, so to speak, and the inflation rate was uh, going to pick up. And I think that did happen. And then things that I certainly didn't see, and I don't think others could have seen, the Ukraine war 
and all of the interferences in supply associated with that right. have created a bit of a perfect uh, storm. I, I'm curious, is it possible that with COVID and all the disruptions that caused, did we have basically two choices, a recession in the moment or throw money at the problem and risk inflation? Were we sort of stuck between two bad choices here? I think we had very, very difficult uh Choices, And I think people uh, with good faith uh, made uh, choices. And I think the while I disagreed with them at the time, I think the choices uh, reflected the consensus of many outside uh, economists. I think we were too slow to pick up on how rapidly the economy was recovering. And therefore, we injected more demand into the economy, both in terms of deficits and in terms of monetary policy, than looks today to have been uh, the right uh, amount. Some of it was we were buying an insurance policy that we turn out not to have needed, right. just like I bought life insurance last year. And in a sense, I wasted my premiums. But in a sense, it was necessary to spend uh, that uh, money. But I was concerned last year that we were injecting too much mm-hmm. demand into the economy, given all the yeah. configurations. And I don't think it was a sound strategy to create as big labor shortages as the labor shortages that we did create. So a recession, is it inevitable or is there a way to avoid it? Nothing is inevitable or certain uh, in uh, economics, Chuck. Uh, the painful fact, uh, though, is that historically, when we've had inflation above four, and we've had unemployment below four, essentially always since World War II, that's been followed by a recession within the next two years. Perhaps we will be fortunate and there'll be sufficiently rapid adjustments in commodity prices and other bottlenecks that will make that uh, not uh, happen. Perhaps the Fed will be extraordinarily skillful. But I think the Fed and lucky, but I think the Fed has a very, very difficult uh, job. I think we can make a contribution by doing things like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve release that yeah. holds down where oil prices would otherwise go. I think it's a time when we need to be looking at uh, tariff reduction because potentially that could take a percentage point off of uh, the CPI. I think we need to look wherever we can at buying things more inexpensively when the federal government is purchasing. We need to look at immigration uh, flows um, so as to address this labor shortage. But it's not going to be easy. Uh, starting from uh, where we are. You've been a supporter of most of the Build Back Better agenda. What what should be focused on that actually could reduce inflation and avoid a recession? I think probably the most important thing, ironically, is some of the revenue increases that the president has uh, talked has has talked about. 
be very substantial benefits to closing a whole range of uh, tax loopholes. What kind of tax? Because you don't like Secretary the billionaire tax. Yellen's. You don't like the billionaire tax. What kind of tax? Would I don't you like, like the. But you're right. I don't like. You're right. You're right. I don't like the billionaire tax. But I do like uh, the provisions that really go after corporations shielding money in the Cayman Islands, shielding money in Ireland. We negotiated a historic agreement mm-hmm. to enable the world to tax global corporations, which it was losing the ability to do. And that agreement could fail if we don't do our part to implement the U.S. measures uh, that are part of it. And we'd sacrifice a lot of revenue and pump up a lot of demand. So I think that is a very important uh, set of steps. I think it's important to remember that over the longer term, The president's infrastructure bill is going to increase the capacity of uh, the economy, and that will be a favorable uh, development. But over the nearer term, I think the concentration on uh, revenue is probably uh, most is probably most uh, important for other reasons. I'd very much like to see the green investments that the administration uh, is proposing, which over time will reduce our dependence on uh, fossil fuels. Okay, first, let me not get completely negative on Larry Summers, economist Larry Summers. He said three good things. One, we want to have uh, to green energy. We do want that. He also said, for this problem that we have with employment, having more people employed, it would be good to open up immigration much better than it is, more efficient than it is. That's what he's implying. And third, he actually wants to uh, tax and close these shelters, right? So all th- those are great things that he wants to do. But where he fails, seriously, is understanding that billionaires don't matter. The average American citizen matter. When he talks about what Biden did when he gave the American Rescue Plan, when he gave the uh, when he provided all those those tax credits, etc., to inflate the economy, when he said that we increase demand too much, what is he saying? You know, that's a technical term, right? We increase demand. You know, we always talk about the supply side economics where these guys want to give you supply and with the expectation that demand will come. But we believe in demand side economics. Demand side economics says we the people are going to determine what demands we have on the economy. We want cars, then you build cars. We want gas, you create gas. Those are the things that we want. Now, he centralized on saying We've added too much demand into the economy without adequate, and here's, here's, here's a kicker, by creating deficits, right? He doesn't want a billionaire tax, and we'll get into that in a little, little bit, and at the same time, he also just wants to recover the net big taxes from those people who offshore it. So in effect, he's saying, I don't want to tax enough to cover what people have been denied for decades, meaning 
uh, social services, education, uh, family leave, and all of that that we ultimately pay for out of taxes and deficits. He doesn't want to pay for it for real because he doesn't want the billionaire tax. So he wants it solved by just not giving it to the American people. So once again, billionaires are protected by our system, right? In other words, we don't want a billionaire tax. And we create, we create demand. Labor shortages he, is the way he expresses it. But we don't have serious political will to go ahead and bring the people in that needs to work. But he misses an important point as well. He also misses the point that when Americans are paid, our utilization rate right now, the employment utilization rate is about 61%. So while he talks about uh, demand increase too fast with labor shortages, he fails to tell you that labor shortages can also be mitigated by increasing the utilization rate for the American citizens. What does that mean? More people simply decide that they want to go to work. But why will they go to work if they don't have child care? Why will they go to work if they're paid menial salaries that's not worth the effort to put in when they can sit back and, you know, kind of hustle around, which is what many or many utilization rate instead of being 67% is at 61%. So we could mitigate immediate, immediate, immediate employment issues by simply raising wages. And people say, well, that's inflationary. Not necessarily. It's not inflationary if we're more productive, which is what we would be, right? So there, if you keep doing things the same way over and over again, meaning not paying people what they're worth, numero uno, numero dos, allowing monies to go directly to the top where Others are fighting for money, which is what he's also proposing, what he's also supports as a neoliberal, and not change immigration policy where, where employment is needed to bring them in. Again, insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and having these up and down cycles. We get inflation because why? Inflation is not here because it has to be here. People like to talk about a mythic some market. The market is a mythical market. Don't ever let them let you believe unless there's a sugar shortage, an oil shortage, and shortages in these areas en masse. The choice to increase prices is just that. A choice by the people who have price and power and you don't. You doubt me? People haven't started buying less gasoline, but... They just raise the prices of gasoline. Why? Because they can. When gasoline, when oil was $150 a barrel, we weren't paying $4.50 for gasoline. Again, they do it because they can. And the same apply to product after product after product. They choose to have inflation. And if you doubt it, if inflation were real, it would be right down the chain, right? So that when you look at, P at these companies' profits, the profits would not show an excessive gain. Why? Because that inflation would have said, if I am a baker who inflated my bread prices, it meant that my, my, uh, my wheat prices went up. And if that wheat price went up, it likely went up because fertilizers and other, and other things went up. All those things in the chain are not happening. 
And how do we know it's not happening? Because those people at the point where these prices are increasing rapidly, they're Profits are record profits. It means this isn't money going through the chain. This is money going to the shareholders. This is money going to people who just says, I can price it and take your money away. And we accept it because when you go to CNBC or MSNBC or CNN or ABC and talk about inflation, they make it seem like this is some market force that's on its own. The market is on its own. The market is a mythical market. There's no, there's no market. The mythical market is that market dominated by a few people who have price and power. They select what the prices are and you pay it. And that is the reason I am absolutely for certain industries, not most, but for critical industry, utilities, energy, healthcare, they all should be nationalized and only the private sector should be involved in things that, you know, you build your phone and all these other issues. Yeah, private sector, restaurant, all the grocery stores, all of that private sector. But critical issues that, that takes care of mobility, health and so forth do not belong as a for-profit motive. There's no incentive to get you healthy because a healthy person doesn't use health care. There's no incentive to give you low prices on gasoline because they can price and make more money because you have to drive. Understand this, folks. Larry Summers keeps telling you how our system is going to operate, not how our system must operate. Remember that. Those who have pricing power are the ones who control the market. There is no market. The market is mythical. It's a mythical market controlled by a few who have price and power and control the sources of production and services. Don't ever forget that or believe what you hear on TV. They must indoctrinate you. They must brainwash you into thinking there is a mythical market that we, that supersedes that person who gouges you. Dr. Wilcox. Dr. David Wilcox is a doctorate prepared nurse who also holds a master's in health administration and is board certified in nurse and informatics. Dr. Wilcox has 28 years of healthcare experience in which he worked as a bedside nurse, hospital administrator, and in healthcare information technology, which has helped him to develop his unique perspective on the American healthcare system. Dr. Wilcox is the author of the book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a patient's handbook for survival. Dr. Wilcox, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Um, thank you for having me today and uh, let's talk about the American healthcare system. Well, you know, I, I have a lot to say, but it's, you know, today's you brother, today is you. I want <laughs> to hear what you have to say because one of the things I like to do whenever we're talking about something as healthcare is to learn what other people think, what other ideas people have, because that is the only way we're going to ultimately come out with the, with the right solution. And your, the title of your book is intriguing. So let's go ahead first. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. Sure. So um, I have a special needs daughter that I took care of many years ago. And um, that is why I became a nurse in the first place. Um, so I'm kind of like a homegrown nurse. I started out at, as a licensed practical nurse 
Then I went back and got my degrees and I became an overachiever and finally landed with my doctorate in nursing. But I remember the caregivers that took care of my daughter. And I thought when I, I was working in manufacturing, when I got laid off, I had tuition benefits. And I thought, you know, I want to get into healthcare. I want to do something that really matters. I don't want to be making plastic parts. You know, I want to do something that really matters. And so that's what I did. Now well, that, that, almost- that is great. Now you said that you had a, a, a daughter that needed quite a bit of attention to quite a bit of healthcare. How did you find interfacing with the healthcare system, whether it's be, uh, I imagine if she had, she was probably on disability insurance or was she mm-hmm. on private insurance? No, she was on disability insurance. Yep. Right. I, well, I imagine then, well, that was a lot. How did you find the interfacing with, with, with the insurance? Oh, the insurance company, the insurance was tough. Um, it was tough to get it. And once it, because it was Medicaid, once mm-hmm. we got it, it w- they pretty much covered a lot of stuff. So, Are you in Texas? I, no, no. I was in New York state at the time. Gotcha. Now, now I live outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Um, but yes, it was crazy. Um, back then, it, you know, back this, you're talking back 30 years ago. So, I mean, it was a whole different story than what it is now with uh, the insurance companies. So we didn't have the Obamacare insurance companies could hand select people, right. And say, you don't get insurance because you've got a pre-existing condition, or if you want insurance, you've got to pay through the roof to be able to get it because you have a pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they were, they weren't doing that back then. Well, amazing. Anyhow, so you wrote this book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of American Healthcare System. The fact of the matter is most people are, in fact, victims of this, what I call wealth transfer engine. So why mm-hmm. don't you start telling me a little bit about why you wrote the book and, and, and some of the techniques that you found helpful to people based on your experience? Sure. So, you know, um, the reason why I wrote the book was I was finishing up my doctorate degree and I thought to myself, what do I want to do with all this information that I have? You know, I definitely didn't want my boss's job. I didn't want her boss's job. So, you know, I thought, what am I going to do? And then the thought came to me, why don't you break down the complexities? Because healthcare is complex for a reason. It's complex because the entities that are buying for your healthcare dollars, my healthcare dollars, they don't really want you to know what's going on underneath the sheets, under the blankets in healthcare. So I thought, why don't I just break that down and write a book and um, and explain to the American people in layperson's terms how to navigate, how to stay safe in a hospital? What do you do when you get that insurance company letter that says you're denied, your claim was denied? What do you do when you go to the pharmacy and find out your prescription drug medication is going to cost you your entire week's grocery budget? Um, what are some of those tips and tricks? How do you navigate it? So that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, that it's interesting because of the feedback that I've been getting from people who have actually read it. So I have a neighbor who was going for surgery and he told me, he said he went in to talk to the surgeon after reading the chapter on what do you ask a surgeon? And when he went in, he said to the doctor, he said, okay, so I have a couple of questions for you. And he said, shoot. And he said, first of all, are you going to be the one doing the surgery? Because a lot of people don't know in mm-hmm. teaching hospitals. So you're paying a surgeon to do it, but it's an intern or a resident doing right. your surgery, right? And you have no idea that that's going on. So the first question is, are you going to do my surgery? The second one is, am I going to be your first case of the day? Because statistically, you'll do better if you're the first case of the day when the surgeon comes in refreshed, as long as he hasn't been on call the night before. And that's what you want to ask him. Are you on call the night before? So he had a whole 
laundry list of questions to ask this guy. And he said when he got done, surgeon looked at him and said, I don't know who you're talking to, but that, those were some great questions. And so he came back and told me, he said, you know, this is this was my experience at, this, at the surgeon's office. And thank you for writing that book. So and there's all kinds of tips like um, looking at your hospital for star ratings. So you can go out to the centers of Medicare and Medicaid services and you can actually see what your local hospital star rating is on one to five, one being the worst, five being the best. And I would recommend that you don't, if you have the choice, don't go to a hospital that's less than four stars. Um, you can also rate your doctor. You can also find out what his star ratings are. Um, you can ask who your anesthesiologist is going to be and check out their star rating. So there's a lot of tips and tricks in this book that the general public really doesn't know. Oh, I lost. Let God. me go ahead and ask you it this way. Um, so I, we don't want you to give away, but because I mean, it, first of all, we couldn't cover that in 20 minutes. Uh, but <laughs> what are the um, if I what what can I expect to get out of your book other than, uh, let's say, talk to your surgeon, uh, shop around for a hospital, look about ratings. Are you going to walk folks through how to do that? Because I'm going to tell you something. Um, it is not. Um, first of all. You have a great book, and for those who are going to, you know, sometimes you have to know what you don't know and learn how to get to know it, mm -hmm. and both of them requires a certain amount of skill, and I imagine one of the reasons that you are here as well is to point to people, hey, there is knowledge out there for you to use, That's knowledge correct. out there for you to get, because most people don't know it. What, how else can you hold your hands to say, get my book for this additional reason? Sure. So um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is um, a, a website called healthcarebluebook.com. So if you call your hospital or go on our website to find out what a total knee is going to cost, more than more often than not, even though there's legislation that's been in place since January 1 of 2020, they're supposed to give you the pricing. But if you go out there, it's usually a medical code. And I mean, I did it at my local hospital. I would have needed a medical coder and I'm a doctor prepared nurse. So healthcare or bluebook.com, healthcarebluebook.com will actually price out what a total knee will cost in your area. Then you'll learn things like if you're in good shape, like we are, you can go to an ambulatory surgical center and get that operation done for about 8,000 in my area. But if you go to a hospital, it's going to cost you 12,000. So if you wow. have a very, yeah. So if you have a very high deductible, you really want to pay attention to that, right? You want to make sure that you're getting pricing because the hospital's not really going to be as transparent as they should be with you. And I could go on for days about, you know, when do you pick up a loaf of bread at, at the store, go to the register and find out it's going to cost you 20 bucks after you've eaten half of it, right? Because that's what healthcare, that's the model of healthcare. Um, the other thing that people really need to understand about healthcare is it's fundamentally flawed. So in the fee-for-service system, which is what we have right now, the doctor I, gets- I, I Explain what that means, because you know yep. that's a term that people use all the time, but I don't think people quite understand. You know, I'm an engineer, right? And right. If, if, our, if our bridge falls, we pay a penalty for it. If we don't provide a service or or something, but that's not how that's not how the healthcare system works. If you go in there and you die, you still owe the bill and your estate that's pays right. it. 
Yeah, that's right. So fee-for-service is basically they get paid on volume. They get paid on the amount of patients they see. So have you ever gone to the doctor's office? He spends like maybe five minutes with you, turns you back over to the nurse to ask questions, and then he's off because he's getting paid. And I could break it all into medical terms, but we won't do that. He's getting paid on how many people he sees during the day. Same thing in the emergency department or at the hospital. So if you show up and you're sick, you're making them money. So what we saw during COVID, when people had elective surgeries, such as total knees or things like that, they didn't go to the hospital. So what happened? We, the taxpayers, had to bail them out to keep the doors open, right? So this fee-for-service system is incentivized. It's incentivized to make more money for the providers and the hospitals. What people don't know, or only 25% of Americans really know about this, is there is a new model out there called value-based care. Value-based care gets paid on outcomes, on how well the patient does, as opposed to walking in and being sick and being treated um, retroactively for an illness that you have. Value-based care means that the insurance company is going to pay a certain amount for me, and my doctor is supposed to keep me healthy and out of the hospital. And if he does, he gets to keep the profit, as opposed to showing up sick and then making a lot of money off of me. So I get incentivized. They do things like they track my steps, you know, my, my tracker here. Um, I can monitor my food intake if I want to, but they're incentivized. They're going to, they're going to push out notifications to me. You need to come in and get your flu shot. You know, you need to get your colonoscopy you know, because if something goes wrong with me, then they're on the hook for the rest of the money. And that is going to fix healthcare in this country if we can just move the legislators out of the way so that we can do this. It's already during. okay. so during COVID, uh, we saved four point one billion dollars in the value based care system because they got paid whether you showed up or not. It was a capitated model. They got paid whether you showed up or not. Fee for service. We were bailing them out left and right. Right. With taxpayer dollars, keep the doors open. So that's one of the things you're going to understand. And and the other piece of it is how to use technology in that situation. So if somebody has congestive heart failure, which means your heart doesn't pump enough blood um, and they're at home, usually what happens is the person now, they don't walk as many steps. They're a little short of breath. Don't really feel right. Maybe I'm coming down with a cold. I don't know. And then by the time it becomes a full-blown crisis, they're in the emergency department, which is a big old money generator for the hospital and for the doctors. And you don't get, you don't get the um, benefit of having the the proactive care. What happens in value-based care is your tracker goes up to a cloud. You have a wireless blood pressure cuff, right? You have a wireless scale so they can see if you're gaining weight. And then that all gets fed up and it bubbles up to the top of somebody's list, usually a nurse navigator position who comes back and says, Oh, Mr. Wilcox, Dr. Wilcox, you need to come in and see us or we're going to adjust your Lasix. Um, It looks like you're not walking as much anymore. Your your oxygen saturation rates are down. And so they're incentivized right, to keep me from going into that full-blown crisis in the emergency department. So it's a win-win. It's better quality of care for the patient. It's um, increased awareness for the physician group. They're incentivized to keep you healthy. So it's um, it's really quite amazing that what this what this value based care model is doing for us. No, I, I I think that I think that is that would be orders of magnitude better than what we have today. Um, 
what makes you believe, however, that our the way our corporatocracy runs, that they will find any reason to want to have a system of that sort? Well, there, there's already systems of that sort out there, and, and there's um, data that shows that they work. Uh, in fact, in uh, just the recent 5.1 billion, or was it trillion or billion dollar bill that just went out? There was, uh, yeah, there was a, they wanted to put a value based care act into that to incentivize more clinicians to do it because, I mean, you're, you know, your clinicians are going at risk. They're not used to that. They're used to getting paid when you show up. So all of a sudden, if they have to keep you healthy and they get a certain locked in amount, they want to know that they can keep you in their network, right? They don't want you to go outside of their network where it's going to cost them more money. And in network means you're going to go see the doctors that are all underneath this plan because it's a group of doctors who share that capitated amount. So they're a little, you know, and hit, they're a little afraid to make that jump into value-based care, but the doctors who are doing it and doing it correctly have the data to show it can be done. Um, but they didn't, anyway, they didn't improve that act in that, in that bill. So um, no, um, we're hoping they would. You are you are ingrained into this the current system, and I see the the absolute value in your book in how can you navigate the current system as is, which I think it's essential, right? Unfortunately, yep. for most people who are not going to get your book, for most people who don't understand, who don't have, who don't know what they don't know, and who just most Americans throw their hands up in the air and say, "Look at what they're charging me." Look at what they're doing for gasoline. Gasoline is five bucks and a, a, a gallon, even though we have a surplus of, of oil that nobody talks about. It's, it's like quiet. Venezuela is swimming on oil and we just don't allow them to pump. We can do a whole right. lot of things. Like We can talk a whole. So most Americans don't know things. Now, I want to challenge you, however, in, in one respect. And that is, I understand that you are a creature of the, of the system, which is a, mm-hmm. and, and that you are able to tell us how to navigate it successfully. You've also told us about a value system that I much prefer, and I think it's more humane. In other words, it actually says to you, hey, go ahead and um, we, we treat the whole body and make sure you don't get sick. That's a great thing. I want to I challenge you in one respect. That still has that profit motive in there that to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, still says that there's a potential that I may not want you in my group because you may actually skew the numbers if you have that, even within that value-based system. Sure. That's what I see in, you know, I see the value system as humane, but I also see that given that it has a profit motive and there's nothing wrong with a profit, that's, you know, but in healthcare, I really cannot fathom having the motive in there, convince me that I'm wrong. So let's explore that a little bit. So other countries, now we pay, well, we went up from 17.6 of our GDP to Mm 19.7 in 2020. Most countries pay about 8.7 of their GDP. As far as healthcare quality outcomes, we are dead last in industrialized. Yeah. Yes. So they're doing some things that are working. It's not, it's not perfect, right? Um, you know, within the government being able to negotiate prices, okay? So they can negotiate if they're taking in a bunch of low presser or a drug, they can negotiate it for the entire population of, let's say, Finland. They can negotiate that price. With Medicare, 
we're not allowed to negotiate the price. Exactly. There, right. There's a bill in place that's, that says you can't negotiate it. Now they're doing some work on that. Hopefully we can negotiate drugs that are meet a certain criteria, like greater than five years old, but that's crazy. Right? So we have this unregulated pharmaceutical company and everybody thinks they make big money off these brand name drugs when they come out of the gate and charge way too much for them. It's the ones they're not talking about. The curve goes up over inflation and that's how they're pocketing the money and they're making their shareholders 15 to 25% a quarter, right? So yeah, the profit margin. So this country will never, and this is my opinion, will never go to socialized medicine. It just won't happen. Let me stop you you there and ask you a question though. Um, You've been in the system and you you know, you don't, you don't have to answer that, but isn't that, that model really the most efficient model of them all? It depends. So there are some efficiencies that are gained, such as price negotiation, but you see what happens in Canada, right? Canada, it's hard to get an appointment. All the doctors leave during the summer because they can, you know, and so you'll get the junior players there. Um, There are some aspects of it that work right and some that don't. But the closest thing that we're ever going to get to, I think, is going to be an incentivized model in which the actual physicians, the respiratory therapists, the dietitians, the nurses, they all have skin in the game and get paid to keep you healthy. I think that's the model that we're going to see. This value-based care model is the model. And I know you you alluded to the fact that you don't like the profit aspect of it. Yeah, but, I'm going to go into that a little bit more later. But I mean, yeah, I, I don't sure. I, I think I, I don't think it's moral, but you know, please finish for me. Yeah. So, but if you're working to get your profit because in a fee for service, you're, you're not, you're, you're seeing them come in, mm-hmm. you're making your notes, you're getting paid. The coders are going through pulling stuff out. That's a whole nother nightmare. Um, and, and that's another thing they gain in socialized medicine. Like they might have seven coders for the entire country of Canada. We probably have like 350,000 here in the States. So that increased the cost. Right. Um, so it's, they're actually working. My point is they're working for that money because they're part of your healthcare team. You are partnering with them as opposed to being treated by them. There's a big difference when I partner with my providers as opposed to being treated. So then I have some accountability. If I'm going to go to Wendy's every day and get a burger for lunch, or if I'm going to go to Whole Foods and get a salad, um, you know, I have the accountability with my provider. It's not just I get sick and then I go to the hospital and they fix me up and then I go back out and live my current lifestyle and get sick again. Dr. Wilcox, let me let me put it. Let me say it this way. You wrote a book on how to navigate the current system. You're earning your money legitimately and given a serve a worthwhile service. The system exists today as it exists. And as it exists today, we need somebody to tell us or help us navigate the system. You are worthy. You are worthy. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate let, let that. Me, let me finish. Let me finish. But you are worthy. Okay. Uh, what the, the, part, the part that I don't understand with, you know, somebody like yourself and others that I've spoken to on this issue, um, I, I think this sort of a profit motive within the healthcare system, or, or I guess it's the, the, the kind of economy that we have in the United States is so inculcated in our minds that we don't see the other, sometime the other side. And I want to query you and just ask you a couple of things. And you, you work so hard to navigate the system. The shareholders who hold the hospitals, the shareholders who hold the doctors hostage, all these guys 
They're not like you, doctor. Nope, they're not. <laughs> okay, and that is a profit motive that I'm talking about. Also, you spoke about, uh, well, the doctors are incentivized. Yeah, they get a good salary. And I, I want them to get a good salary. My, my sister's a doctor. My daughter, who just had two strokes, is working on her boards right now just to be a doctor. I mean, so I am all for that. I just want or hope that we will see more people of your caliber because you know how the system works. Mm. Uh, tell people like it is, you know, uh, like, hey, those shareholders didn't do a damn thing for, you know, That's most right. drugs. Most drugs are developed at universities or grants that been from the NIH. And, and when the, their viability shows up, oh, then the shareholders come in and say, oh, yeah, we'll, the, 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 we'll invest in that now because we see the viability. Right. Those are the kinds of things I want to mitigate. But I think it's people like you that have to, I mean, you, I think you can do a better job than I can in, in, <laughs> in putting that message out. Yes, awesome. definitely. Definitely. So in in the healthcare realm, we're called disruptors because right. we we're, we don't just we're not going to sit back and watch this happen anymore. So have, have you followed Mark Cuban's pharmaceutical, generic pharmaceutical um, online company at all? No, I have not. OK, so this is a guy from Shark Tank. Right? I know who he is. Yeah. Uh, OK, so he started an online generic pharmaceutical company to lower costs by huge amounts, because what people don't know is you think a doctor writes you a prescription, you go get it filled. And it's your it's a transaction between the doctor, yourself and the pharmacist. Right. There's that middleman, no. MB, PMBs. Yes. Pharmacy benefit managers. Mm -hmm. So what Mark Cuban has done is he said, I'm not playing with the pharmacy benefit managers. I'm not going to support that role because they will charge you the price of admission to the insurance companies. And so what he does is he goes directly to the drug manufacturer buys the drug for as cheap as he can, sells it for a 15% markup to keep his business sustainable. Well, yeah. And he said, and he said he could make so much more money if he just played ball with these guys, but that's not what it's about. So, and then there's like another 5% or something to ship it to you. But that kind of disruption makes the pharmaceutical. Companies. I didn't know about that. Uh, oh, that, yeah, yeah. I didn't know about that at all. I'm going to look that up because, you know, and, and, and see, and anybody can use his services. Yes. As long as you have a prescription called in and he's got a warehouse actually in Texas. Mm -hmm. So he's got a warehouse well, he's from Texas. Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. So he's and he plans on expanding this model. So, you know, why would you I mean, it's cheaper than having insurance, which makes you start to wonder, you know, Medicare Part D, do I really need it if I can get mm -hmm. my drugs at, you know, dirt cheap from his site? So it's it has a tendency to rock the boat in so many directions. I mean, right. GoodRx was one of the initial ones that did it. Um, but, he, you know, he's just doing it to help people. And that's what we need more of. You know, we need more care in healthcare. We don't, you know, healthcare has become, like you said, a business. It's it's profit driven. It's they've got shareholders. They've got to make a certain amount of money. But what happened to the care? What happens to the poor guy that goes into the emergency department? He has congestive heart failure. He gets his prescriptions. He goes to the pharmacy and he tries to fill them and they tell him it's going to be $250. He opens his wallet and he's got a 20, right? Mm -hmm. He can't get those drugs. So he leaves and he goes back because they fixed him at the hospital and he gets sick again within the next 30 days or so. And he's right back in the emergency department and it's a vicious cycle. Um, I've even heard of a pilot program where because hospitals started to get dinged, we talk about profit because if somebody had been there, 
within 30 days and came back for the same condition, they weren't going to get paid for it for certain conditions. They just gave people 30 days worth of medication because it was cheaper to just give them the drugs, right? And then they don't come back and then the hospital doesn't get dinged. So yeah, unfortunately, it really does come down to the money motivation. I mean, we could talk about one of the big healthcare insurers that's actually insuring the Medicaid population in Arizona went out, he found, or they found the people that were costing them greater than $50,000 a year in costs, bought an apartment complex for these homeless individuals and said, hey, we will give you an apartment. We'll give you access to a nurse practitioner for four hours a day. You have to stay out of the hospital, quit going to the ED, quit becoming an inpatient, and we will take care of you. And if you can do that, we'll help you get signed up for SSI. And so they returned investment to their shareholders in a very humane way. But it was all driven by the dollars because the guy who was doing the right thing and not accessing the system, he didn't get any of that benefit, right? Nothing. So. Well, let me tell you, Dr. Wilcox, um, I always, my last question always say, where have I erred? What would you have liked me to ask you? Well, I want to do this, but beforehand, I want to, I want to do a, a very, a one minute monologue and say, first of all, thank you for appearing on the show. Thank you for writing the book, because I think that people have to learn how to navigate the system as it is today, not necessarily how an idealist like me would want it to be or a more pragmatic person like you would want it to be, you have to be able to uh, look at the system the way it is today. So I uh, thank you for the book. Um, I have one request for you in the future, given that you know the ins and outs of how the system work, that you consider some of the ways that I that I think that says, let's get the damn profit from shareholders and, and all those crazy bonuses out of the system. How Maybe write a book on how can we transition to that? So that's that's my one minute spill with you. But please, sir, um, what didn't I ask you that you would have liked me to ask you? Sure. So the one thing I, I would like everybody to hear is don't access the healthcare system without knowing about the healthcare system. You'll get hurt. Um, happens all the time. I've seen it happen all the time. Uh, we have a nurse from Vanderbilt that's just recently went to trial for a med error. I mean, it's the first time we've seen a nurse do that before. And we could definitely do a show on that because that's that's crazy. But my point is proactively educate yourself with viable, good materials. And that's why I wrote this book was so that people could proactively educate themselves so they knew how to behave in a healthcare system and how to partner in their care. For instance, if somebody rushes in to give you meds, you make sure they tell you what each medication does and cross references of what you take at home because people have gotten hurt in rushed medication scenarios. So do your research. Just please do your research so that you can be safe and you know we can have a beer together someday. Dr. David Wilcox, author of the book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a Patient's Handbook for Survival. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You can listen and or watch Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My Twitter handle is at Egberto Willies, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L. 
I-E-S. But don't you forget, listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. all Central Time. Please get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it for a pledge of $120. Get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. The Contributions for my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT-only membership for $40, a Pacifica-only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org, choose Politics Done Right for the program, and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT on your mind. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support. That is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Well, folks, that's it for today. You know how I'm going to end this baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. 